Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Congress avoids a government shutdown around Thanksgiving with another continuing resolution. But even CRs affect military service members, civilian federal workers, and their families. The effects could be felt across government, in the Defense Department, and other agencies. The common thread is the human impact it has. Federal News Network's Kirsten Eric has been writing about it and joins us now with some details. Hi, Kirsten. Hi. Excited to talk about this topic. So, so let's talk broadly about sort of government-wide stuff. What's the general impact? What's the pattern of all these CRs on agencies? So when we talk about finance shutdowns or continuing resolutions, the focus can tend to be on the numbers, you know, but these have a really big impact on agencies' workforce whether it's the uncertainty that several continuing resolutions make or the extra work and planning that's created as a result, it can also infect morale. And I know in your recent story, you focused quite a bit on, on the DOD-specific impacts and including to military members. How, how, how when, you, when, when, you, when we drill down on DOD specifically, what are some of the effects? Right. So one example is it really impacts the quality of life for service members. So a recent Government Accountability Office report found that many barracks are in poor condition with mold, broken heating or cooling systems, sewage overflow, to name a few things. There was also a recent congressional hearing on this topic, and GAO found that one of the reasons for the poor conditions is the chronic underfunding and neglect. Now, while DOD is trying to fix this with a multi-year investment strategy, continuing resolutions can make these conditions worse by delaying funding and causing deferred maintenance. Another example is the impact this can have on childcare, particularly if there's a 1% budget cut as a result of sequestration. This will likely impact civilian workers who can often work in the childcare facilities. There can also be an impact on industry. It's unlikely that industry will invest in something without a steady demand signal. And Secretary of the Air Force, Frank Kendall, compares all the continuing resolutions to a race. If you're doing a race that's a mile long, we're essentially giving away a quarter mile head start to the other side, quarter mile. If you add up over four years, those four periods of three months, we customarily now don't have appropriations or authorizations, that's like a quarter of our time. You're giving away an inquired lap in a four lap race to the other side to move ahead while you're sitting still. That makes no sense whatsoever. So that was Air Force Secretary Frank Kendall, and he also says that since agencies cannot spend money that they don't have, the Air Force cannot increase funding for programs. It's ready to ramp up, for instance, increasing production rates. A good example of that is our C-3 battle management system, the Advanced Battle Management System, which is the Air Force and Space Force as part of Joint All-Domain Command and Control. We intend to double the budget for that effort in 24. So we would be kept at half the rate at which we're prepared to spend if the bills don't pass or until they pass. So that that has a big impact. You can't hire people. You can't put contracts in place. And if you do, you have to limit the scope of work of them. In the case of production programs, you can't do multi-years and you can't increase production rates in programs where you'd plan to do that. So it just holds us back. It's like an anchor keeping us moving forward. Once again, that's Air Force Secretary Frank Kendall, and we are talking with Federal News Network's Kirsten Eric. And Kirsten, then looking outside DOD, what are some of the effects that you're hearing about on these compounding CRs on on civilian agencies? Right. So continuing resolutions can lead to more work and delayed hiring, contracts, and grants. They can also cause more uncertainty and limited management options. CRs can also lead to inefficiencies and delays in hiring, for example, 
They can cause repetitive work. They also hinder innovation and modernization efforts and prevent new programs from starting. If there's a shutdown, basic government functions are reduced or stopped. For example, like national parks are closed, food safety inspections stop, and there could be disruptions to air travel, and some employees may be furloughed. And of course, all this gets much worse if there's an actual government shutdown. And I know you've been talking to some folks who were impacted by the last uh, last one that affected DOD back in 2013. What, what have they been telling you about what that, what that was like? Right. So it has a large impact on military service members and civilian DOD workers. So, for example, civilians may be furloughed, which can impact morale and workload. I spoke with John Polovchek who is currently an executive director at Ernst & Young. He's a retired Navy Rear Admiral who was also the supply chain lead on the White House Coronavirus Task Force and Joint Staff Vice Director for Logistics. During the 2013 shutdown, he was Comptroller for Fleet Forces Command, and he told me a story about the impact of the shutdown on one of his coworkers. I had an office manager. She was a GS9, I think. She managed calendars for, for me and my uh, my deputy. She managed the workflow, things coming in from the front office that had to be chopped through the comptroller. She also managed some additional workflows for the for the office for keeping the trains running on time and financial reviews and other things. So I mean she was a you know an integral employee. And the run-up to sequestration, she was out of her mind and stress, uh, which really impacted her performance. And, you know, she, single mother taking care of her, taking care of her mother. And her only outlet was, was a horse that she had. And she was so stressed by the furlough that she made a decision to get rid of the horse because she wasn't sure that she was, if she was furloughed, that she was going to be able to take care of it. That was John Polovchak from Ernst & Young. So you can really see how, you know, from his story of his coworker, how that has impacted not only his coworker, but that memory stuck with him for a decade. This really highlights the impact of shutdowns, especially if there's furloughs and people are not sure when or if they will get their next paycheck or uncertain how they will make ends meet. And this can also, the uncertainty, both from a shutdown, also carries with several continuing resolutions. All right, Federal News Network's Kirsten Eric. Thanks very much, Kirsten. Thanks, Jared. And you can find more in her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. 
And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected. And also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is 
what do they need when they need it, and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I wanna hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so... That was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus. Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. 
And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, 
find my own confidence and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're Thank uh, you. having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.